I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Shauna Dorsey. Shauna Dorsey is the Vice President of Tech Education for AIM. Shauna earned bachelor's and master's degrees in management information systems and has earned the PMP and PMIACP certifications through the Project Management Institute. Shauna is active with numerous community organizations, most recently joining the executive board of Omaha Girls Rock. Among several awards, in 2016, Shauna was nominated for and accepted a Women in Technology Award from Information Week, was a 2014 recipient of the 40 Under 40 Award from the Midlands Business Journal, and is a graduate of the Omaha Chamber of Commerce Leadership Omaha Program. Welcome to the show, Shauna. Thank you. Tell me about your upbringing. Upbringing. So so I had several addresses when I was a little kid, all kind of in the North, Northish, yeah, North Omaha area, pretty much. My parents divorced when my sister, when I was seven, and I'm still pretty close with my dad. But um, my mom raised my sister and I. My sister is two and a half years younger than than me, so yeah, we spent a lot of time together. My mom worked a lot, so we were kind of raising each other in a way, kind of through competition because <laughs> we <laughs> were so competitive that we would compete on like. Um, grades, even though we weren't in the same grade and just like beating each other in silly video games and things like that. But um, that all kind of helped, I think, in a way. But yeah, for the most part, it was me and my mom and my sister and a lot of me and my sister just kind of making it work at home. Paint a picture of what life was like then. It sounds as if that informed your early years, but what do you remember about those, those times? I definitely remember, I remember having great teachers. I'll tell you, like, there was always good and bad in everything, right? So I remember having great teachers and mentors who thought I had more potential than I was, like, uh, allowing myself to demonstrate. (laughs) And so we spent a lot of time in, like, after-school programs that my mom would get us signed up for. She worked in the uh, public school system. So she had, she knew who the best teachers were and helped us to be in, um, have opportunities to, to learn from those individuals. So I thought that was really great. But there were also lots of negative influences around us because there was, my dad was um, involved but more like uh, a phone call away versus a real presence in our lives when we were kids, unfortunately. And so um, there, it was easy to get caught up in things that were probably not the best activities and with people who were not the best influences and maybe didn't have our my best interests in mind. So definitely had some, some uh, friends that turned out not to be. But luckily enough, um, getting, you know, becoming wise enough to things where I was like, okay, this is not the path I want to go down. I see how this plays out. How did you come to those realizations that these particular decisions or these pathways weren't the ones that you wanted to Mm -hmm. either step down or continue down? Right. I think it was, we, I had the um, unfortunate experience of, uh, experiences, I should say, of, knowing a lot of kids who were murdered in their teens. And they weren't close friends of mine in many cases, but just people that knew close friends of other friends or relatives of mine. And it was such a common thing. But I could see kind of the patterns and say to myself, I probably shouldn't hang around these types of people because this is the type of thing that happens around them. Like there were guns around like 
all of the things that you want to forget. But yeah. Yeah. So it was just kind of watching some of the bad play out and not wanting to have that happen to my to me. Um, so a couple of things happened. When I was 12, my brother was murdered. So he was quite a few years older than us, like um, nine years older than me. Um, that was really hard on my entire family. And the the reason he was murdered from what I understand, um, I wasn't involved in any of those things in my life, but I had friends who were. And I was just like, I can't, that I just had to, that was a, a fear of mine of having that A happen to me or happen to somebody else. Um, you know, to be murdered. Um, the other thing is um, probably around that same age, between 20 and 10 and 12, I can't remember anymore, but one of my, one of my friends, quote unquote, um, and a few of her friends broke into my mom's house and stole some, uh, what do you call it? School clothes that my mom had just purchased for us. And my mom was on a very limited budget. And so for that to happen was pretty devastating. But again, it was another situation where I said, that is a, a clear line in the sand to me about like who my friends are and are not. lived in Omaha all your life? Uh, most of my life. In my early 20s, I left town to, um, I went to uh, Norway and, and Atlanta for like three, three months and six months respectively. I started in Atlanta, then went to Norway, then came back to Omaha. But yeah, the majority of my life I've spent in Omaha and I'm from here. So. Norway, the obvious choice. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> what was that for? Oh, some guy. <laughs> I thought this was going to be school or something no, like this. But. Nope. 23. I was, uh, I'd graduated from college by that point. It took me a while, but, um, and I was just ready to see what else was out there. What did you think of Norway? I loved it. It's really, really diverse. Now, um, there were a lot of, um, Africans there and just people from all over the world. So, and I was in Oslo, even in 2003, it was just really interesting, very diverse, just really great. Tell me about this guy. <laughs> so, so he's a nice man. We're still friends. Um, Norwegian guy. Great guy. We got married and divorced and, you know, yeah. God, it just keeps unpacking. I know. There's so much. There is so much. <laughs>
This story is one that I do not want on, uh, not a lot on the radio. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's wind it back just a little bit then okay. to, um, there were some teachers in your life, it seems, that saw potential. You mentioned they saw potential in you. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you must have overcome whatever particular context yeah. might have held you back. And you uh, succeeded in getting a good education mm-hmm. and getting to college. Mm-hmm. But I don't think those things are easy to do. Uh-huh. So h- how did you make the transition from, say, being someone who was 15 and potentially on the edge mm-hmm. of various choices from which it would be hard to come back from, <clears throat> mm-hmm. to getting to be 18 and having a college place and off you go. Yeah, that that's a great question. I just, I am trying to remember now. So when I was in high school, I remember having a guidance counselor who um, encouraged me to think about going and going to college and things like that, um, because I definitely wasn't a focus of mine or an interest of mine for a long time. And so um, I want to say that was probably my, se- not senior year, um, sophomore, junior year or so. So I got turned my grades around somehow and started applying to colleges, did well enough on my ACT to get um, to become eligible for some decent scholarships. I applied for the Goodrich Scholarship and and uh, was accepted. So that's a full ride scholarship program for your entire college undergraduate career. So you went to college and you studied uh, management information systems. Thank you. Yep. What is that? It's kind of like, um, so I started off, here's another story for you. So I started off, I think I started off as a biology major. I don't recall. So biology, then I switched to computer science and then I switched to MIS. And I ended up going from computer science to MIS because I really, um, I did not enjoy the the programming, the computer science sort of <laughs> things, but I really love the people management stuff and I, I appreciate technology. So it just was a better fit for me. It was more of the business side of tech. Um, I forgot what the question was. Something like that. I just wonder what management information systems was. (laughs) Like (laughs) business and tech together. Interface school. Yeah. So Interface um, started that company out of just an idea that for, to me felt like it came out of thin air from <laughs> Marques Brook and Beth Engel. Um, we met, I remember we met at Jones Brothers and they were like, we have this idea. We want to start this school. And uh, I was not sold up front. I thought it was a good idea, but I was just like, how's that even going to work here? And (laughs) nobody's going to pay for that. You know, it took me about a month or two to decide to quit my job to start Interface. But um, I ended up starting that company with four people 
I didn't know it all really. Just me and uh, Mark and Beth and Jake and Jared and Seth. So there were five of us, but they each had, they had their own relationships, but I knew none of them, <laughs> none of them prior to starting it. But, um, yeah, we like started having conversations in the fall of 2013 and I quit my job in December, 2013. And we launched interface in January, 2014. We ran our very first class in March of 14 and we had eight students in that class. Not very diverse, very, it was all white males, which is hilarious because it's just like tech, you know? <laughs> and so, Well, and yeah. maybe I should stop you there sure. by, by saying um, or asking, what is the school What was the about? school? Yeah. yeah. Or is the Teach. school, I should say. Um, so it's a web developer training school. So it's for people who can't necessarily drop out of the workforce to go learn a skill. Um, they want to do it part time and they need to get it done quickly. And so that's what we that's what we do. Um, it's 14 weeks or less, just depending on which course you take. We were really fortunate to land a partnership with First National Bank in the first year. So we ran a um, a dot net developer training course with First National Bank and that added a ton to our credibility. Um, and we kind of switched our focus too. so when we first started, we focused on new emerging tech. Um, the challenge with that in Omaha is that we aren't typically doing the newest thing because we have a lot of businesses that depend on older technologies like Java and .NET and even COBOL still. There's still programmers learning COBOL. So that's a reality for us. So we wanted to be able to serve the, the companies that need the developers and can support bringing on junior talent, but then also you know, create those opportunities for people to learn the new and cool stuff with us too. So we, we do a little bit of both, but our focus is more on what companies need today. What was the why that was pitched to you? What was this need in, mm -hmm. in the local community that made Interface School necessary and sustainable? Yeah, the initial need or um, the initial why I should say was to help startups find um, talent because that is a huge need. It's still a huge need for startups is for strong developer talent. And um, it evolved and it's still evolving to this day. AIM Institute, it's a nonprofit acquired interface earlier this year in January. And so um, prior to that, I was doing most of the day-to-day -day operation stuff with some support from um, one of my key staff members. And now we have different departments that handle things like a marketing <laughs> department and HR and accounting and things like that. So that's been a huge, a huge help as well, just as far as capacity goes. You indicated you were slightly hesitant at the very beginning. What motivates you now to be involved in, in mm -hmm. leading this organization? It's the the outcomes really so knowing that people have gone through our training and have gone from minimum wage jobs to jobs where they can really support their families is is huge to me um having grown up in a single parent home i know what it's like to not be able to have the things you want or be able to and i'm not a parent but um uh, i can imagine how it is difficult to not be able to give your kids the things that they want and the things that you want to give them because you know your resources are strained or you know so that is huge to me. Has the profile changed of the students? Mm -hmm. Significantly. So we're now, um, I'd say 30 to 40% women in our classes, which is so good. And we're still working on more um, minority representation, but we're probably at about 20%. So that's two-ish out of 10 people will be African-American or Hispanic or, you know, other. So 
Do you have any particular observations about the nature of the tech industry? Yes. Um, so before I started Interface, I remember feeling like um, one of the real challenges for companies is they'll have these developers who are so skilled, so good at the technical side of things, but not very strong on the collaboration soft skill side. And, um, and that was pretty prevalent even when I was before I exited. So that's 2013, 2014. Um, and now I think we're starting to see a shift where employers want more of the soft skills and they're like, we can teach you the hard stuff. You know, if you have the basics down and the aptitude in some cases, especially for uh, junior developers, then they're more willing to train you versus um, having you come in with the, the hard skills because a lot of some of those things can are hard to uh, unteach. But if you have someone who comes in and is a great team player, they're just a better asset to a team anyway and an organization as a whole. So. We're, I think we're starting to see that shift. And then we're starting to see more women, women and girls initiatives too, which is important. So uh, for the diversity and tech conversation, that's happening a lot. I think that locally anyway, we still have challenges with like African-Americans in tech. Like right now, I think the number is about 1% of the tech workforce are African-American women and that's nationwide. So it's really low. Lots of opportunity though for people who... It's who, uh, who fit, you know, it's not, tech is not for everyone. <laughs> Does that make you something of a role model and also um, a catalyst and an advocate for more diversity in this particular field? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I must ask open questions. <laughs> tonic friction between an old guard, mm -hmm. which was perhaps the eight young white gentlemen that turned up at your first class, mm -hmm. and trying to get to a place where it's much more common that young girls or African-Americans or various diverse communities at a very young age see themselves mm -hmm. in careers that currently they won't see themselves in. Right. Yeah, that's that's interesting because it's a little bit tricky. So on the on not having read this, I do agree that it's important to have open conversations, but that's tough for people. That is confrontational. It makes people uncomfortable. And depending on who the who the participants are, it can become um, very unpleasant in a hurry. You know, if there's not a lot of trust there. So that's hard to expect people to just say, OK, yeah, let's we're good. Let's have this this really challenging conversation. On the other side of it, I do believe um, that it would be amazing if it wasn't any a thing 
for me to be an African-American woman in tech, but it's, it's a thing that people talk about where it's somewhat special and it shouldn't be. That's where I want it <laughs> to get to, where it isn't special. It's just like commonplace, you know? Yeah, but there's, it'll take time for us to get there. And I think fostering that, those, um, that support, especially for young girls and especially young uh, people who live in, from disadvantaged backgrounds, no matter their, their uh, ethnicity or race. Um, but for them to see that they have a place at the table and that they belong there. And if, and not if they work hard, they'll, you know what I mean? But just like if they have access to the opportunities to play a part, that, that is critical. So, but yeah, so there's like two things that have to happen. We have to get okay with having these conversations, which is a long game. And then also training the kids. That's also a long game. That's two things that will take a long time. But understanding that there's a, a diversity challenge and then expecting it to change overnight is completely unrealistic, in my opinion. Do you in some way resent just a little bit that through no choice necessarily of your own, you were interested in this field, but you have had the role of role model foisted upon you because of the very things that you're trying to make irrelevant being a young woman, being African-American and being in tech, mm -hmm. the coincidence of those three things makes you unusual and therefore you are expected to speak to those issues. But I would imagine that you may do so reluctantly. Um, or I'll do so in a way that people do, that may not support someone else's agenda. And so I will be, I will be the first to say something like, well, we need to have an open conversation about it. And this is not going, we're not here to solve it. We're here to discuss it, you know, because there's a lot to unpack and a lot of other things are not, that are not related to tech. It's like related to our own, uh, divisions within this country. There's a lot of things that are going on, you know, that impact this whole this whole thing. So, do you think we live in particular peculiar times, or do you just think every generation has had this kind of social conflict in some way? Yeah, I think that, from what I know about history, that <laughs> every generation has had its own set of conflicts or different conflicts to address. And so, here now we have ours, and Everything's just more public. <laughs> so, and easy to share. And some we don't know if it's real or not. And, you know, it's complicated. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
So we were talking about there being tough conversations to be had socially. You seem to occupy a very visible profile in the community and in your career and your field. So how do you go about having these conversations about issues that are important to you? Right. I was telling you that I try to pick my battles, which I really do. So I am very supportive of um, some really strong community leaders who who are focused on some of these efforts. And I do what I can to support them from the the background sometimes, which might look like promoting an event that they're hosting or showing up to that event and supporting them that way. Things like that. I, um, it's a tricky spot to be in because you're, you're right that there is this kind of assumed responsibility that, or assumption that I will have something to say about every single issue that pops up, but I really don't. And there are some things I just don't pay attention to um, because I do have my own life to live and I try to live it well. So I do my work and then I um, am vocal on the things that I want to be. And then I sit back on other things because there are other uh, other people who can support that cause a little bit better than I can. So that's kind of how I try to do it and find a little balance. What are those issues that you feel moved to speak out about? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the key things are uh, <laughs> anything related to like domestic violence sort of issues because it has uh, affected me directly and recently. Um, also, uh, women empowerment sort of issues, anything having to do with girls and them feeling okay about who they are and confident in their skin, like all of those things I think are are um, areas that have caused me to have challenges in my own life and I want to help people avoid those same things. And those are things I can get passionate about. You mentioned just then that you've had an experience with domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Could you share that story? Yeah, um, I'll give you the the, <laughs> the non what's it called deposition version. Like I had to. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you about the incident and then the 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 legal side of it, too, because that was extremely difficult. It was like its own set of own set of trauma, you know, or it created um, it was traumatic for me. So um, first um, I dated this guy for a short period of time. It the relationship didn't work out and um, it ended in a night where he became really upset because of the way I responded to something. So basically, um told him I was going to call him and I forgot. And then he showed up where I was and, um, I thought everything was fine, but it wasn't turned into a night where, um, this guy, uh, strangled me three times, including one time where I passed out and then assaulted me in other ways. And, um, I did not know, I'd never gone through anything like that. So I really didn't know that it was a crime. I just knew that it felt really wrong. And so I ended up contacting the police. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I was like crying and just like really upset. And I was like, here's what happened. And they said, well, that is, um, if you were strangled, it's a felony in this, in this County. And, um, if you want to file a report, you can come, you can come down. And so I did. And 
Um, I went to the police station, filed my report in person, and then it was just really, it was challenging after that. So um, I I had to get a protection order and this thing happened on a Friday night and um, I had no, they weren't going to arrest him right away and all this stuff. So I just felt like I was in a lot of, of fear and there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, I did go through a deposition that lasted a really long time and um, was made to feel like what happened was my fault. And um, it was just a really bad experience. And then the entire legal proceedings. So going through something like this, my entire case, and it's no fault of my attorney or, or his, it's just the system. It took a year and three months to get through. So I went through the initial incident on my mom's birthday, unfortunately, uh, September, uh, 24th, 2015. And then, um, December 9th, 2016 is when the final final, what is it? Conviction was read or whatever. Verdict. Yeah. Was, was, uh, was read. And, um, this person went from facing two felony charges to one misdemeanor conviction of disturbing the peace, basically, or disorderly conduct, something like that. So, um, every, when I think back on that situation and how much time it took to get through it and how, stressful it was to like go to court. There were days when I would like go to court and then have to go to a meeting in the same day for work. And the courthouse was like right across the street or is right across the street from my office. So I could literally walk (laughs) to hearings, um, which was extremely convenient, but it was also just, it was one of the craziest times in my life because I was, I was having to turn that on and off all the time. So I couldn't, I, I don't know how to explain how that feels. Um, but looking back on all of that, knowing that it took a year and three months to wrap up and that I had to get two protection orders, um, because one expired because the case took so long to wrap up. Um, I would do it again, even if the outcome was the same, um, because I feel like I had to fight for, for, um, whoever he is, he dates after me so that, if there are some unresolved issues there that he maybe gets them addressed. And if not, he can leave that situation and not put anyone else in um, more harm than I was in or more danger. So that I think is a good thing. And I would do it again, but it was extremely difficult to get through that and run a new business at the same time. So this happened in, like I said, September, 2015, we launched interface in January, 2014. So this is still a very new company, very young company, which required a lot of my time and attention. And so I think that that also was a benefit just because I had to focus on, I had something that was so significant in my life and my work life to focus on that it, it did give me like a clear break when I needed it. So yeah, it's a lot. When you said that you, you seem confused or uncertain about the nature of this being a crime. Mm -hmm. And yet it seems as soon as you explained that it, something seemed fundamentally right. wrong with it. And, and I'm just wondering if you look back on that and, and think, why were you surprised? Why, what was going through your mind at, at that time? Yeah, I think there were a few things. One was, um, he was really mad at me and I'm like, okay, I did really make him mad. Like it, I somehow took part of the blame or made part of it my fault. 
at the time. And then the other side of it was I thought it would be really embarrassing if people knew that I was running this business and a lot of people had this perception of me and that it would all fall apart if they knew that I had gone through this thing because it was kind of my fault that it happened. You know, like that's kind of where my head was, but it took me like 45 minutes to decide that that is false. And I had to, had to report it and go through whatever hard thing. And it was not easy. Like there were so many times during that year and three months where I wanted to just give up and like throw out, have my attorney throw out the case, but she would not stop. (laughs) But it was so hard to stick with it. So that first decision of I'm going to call the police had to be made over and over again for me to like stick with this thing throughout that, that period of time. And it doesn't sound necessarily as if you felt comforted by that initial initial contact or initial set of contacts that you had with either law enforcement or the legal system. Yeah. And I, I think part of it, and when I look back on it, so I, I went to the police and I'm like, I'm so... This never, this happened to me and I'm so special, not so special because it did, but this is such a unique thing. And why isn't there more attention being paid to it? I had no idea that this kind of thing happens all the time. And, um, I had no idea. I just thought it was like a random, uh, like domestic violence is not common. I'd had no clue about the stats and even in Omaha, it's extremely high. And so, um, the response looking back on it, I can, I can empathize, I guess, with police and law enforcement and, and my attorney who was probably overwhelmed with a lot of other cases. And, um, I, I get it now, but at the time I was like, why, why isn't everyone treating me like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody, you know? So in other words, what you're saying is the capacity for people within the system just to be kind has been suffocated just by the sheer mass of the statistical occurrence of this and maybe the frequency with which these same people are having to deal with it day in, day out. I would imagine there's maybe um, a numbness of sorts that develops. And I don't really know, like I've never talked to a police officer about like, how do you respond to Uh, victims under these circumstances. I don't know, but I would just imagine over time you're like, okay, I've heard this before, you know, get through your story. So no one was ever really, um, okay. There was one phone call, but outside of the one phone call, (laughs) no one was ever really rude to me. Um, and no police officer was ever really rude to me. It was just more like a little bit cold and, I'm like, they're not nurses, they're police officers. So that's something that I've had to let go. But it was hard at the time to to feel like my story didn't matter, I guess. Insofar as you're able to talk about this, do you feel like justice was done? Um, Okay, I'll say based on other stories I've heard that sound similar in nature to me where you know, where, yeah, the, where the circumstances were similar, it is not surprising. Um, I also think that for any potential future victim, the answer is yes, because now there is a record of some sort of activity that sounds similar to it. And so I think that that's a great outcome, honestly. So a horrific experience. Mm-hmm. I can't, I, I don't know you well enough to understand how, you know, emotionally and psychologically this continues to impact your life. But to some degree, you 
are speaking out about the story. You've claimed it, you're mm-hmm. speaking out, and you seem to be quite vocal in terms of um, supporting others. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you too, like last week, um, so when this first happened, I would talk about it all the time. Like you could meet me at a coffee shop and we would not know each other. I'd be like, hi, I'm Shauna. Last week, this guy assaulted me. Like it was so heavy that I just had to talk about it all the time and kind of like not make it other people's problem because that's not what I was trying to do, but I just couldn't keep it in. Two weeks ago, I was walking out of my car into the building that I work in and the guy, the guy is walking around the corner and I didn't recognize him at first. I was just like, I, I saw a shape and I was like, okay, no big deal. I'm, I had to go to a meeting and he recognized me, I guess. And then he turned around and walked the other way. And I thought it was weird. So then I looked at him and I recognized that it it was this guy. And um, I was like, that was weird, but I'm really glad that he decided to walk the other way. I went into the building, went to my meeting, got out of my meeting and then told uh, one of the meeting participants what just happened. In the past, this is something that would have caused me to call like 20 people, post it on Facebook and do all these things because I'm like, I have to let you guys know that I'm still dealing with this. And it's something that it was hard, but I, I processed it and let it go for the most part. Um, but a year ago, there was no way I could have saw, seen this person in, in public, like outside of a courtroom, which I hadn't seen him outside of the courtroom since the incident in September 2015. Um, so to see him out in the world was bizarre. Um, so I think that the, the reason why I'm telling you that is I feel like over time I've just, it's become part of my life and I'm like, that's something that happened. It is terrible and tragic. And now I have to use what I learned to help other people. And so initially I thought I was going to be like this huge advocate for domestic violence victims and like go join a bunch of boards and like show up at and testify and, you know, do all this stuff. But it turns out that I feel like the best way I can help people and there are people who are better activists than I am. The best way I can help people is to try to empower them at a younger age and like get to them before anything like this happens is my thought and like mentor them and guide them and help them see their self-worth. That's where I see my, my place because it's, it's coming from a more positive perspective. It also gives me a chance to talk about it. And then in a way say, I'm going to encourage you to not go down this road because there were some things that happened in that relationship that had a lot to do with my own like lack of confidence and, and, um, whatever insecurities I have. So there's that too. And so I'm like, if I can help young women, young men, young people, uh, see and understand their value and worth, then that to me is how I can help to stop this from happening in the future. You mentioned in those moments immediately following the assault Mm -hmm. that you questioned the degree to which you were culpable Mm -hmm. and even a little some self-blaming you Mm -hmm. suggested I think and that to some degree is born out of some of the issues you're talking about and are now speaking Mm -hmm. to. Right and and it probably also has a (laughs) drives a lot of my um, competition like all of these things are kind of interrelated and so sometimes they manifest themselves in ways that are very unhealthy and other ways very um they lead to like accolades and whatnot. Like it's there. It's interesting, you know? (laughs) 
So just in case people are thinking that life is going wonderfully well, uh, there are other topics that you talk out about too. <laughs> yes. And I will say life is pretty awesome overall, <laughs> but <laughs> big life things. Yeah. Yeah. Recent, yeah. super, super recent. So late June, I went in for um, a hysterectomy, so I can't have kids now. Um, but yeah, that was a big deal for me. So I remember um, going in for that surgery and then um, I would talk to friends about it. So I was on bed rest for a few days and then I could drive after 10. Um, but I would talk to friends about the surgery and then um, a lot of them would be like, oh yeah, my sister or yeah, I'm thinking about having that surgery. But it felt very much like it was something to be ashamed of or hidden or something. And I just, I just do not like um, going through big things like that and feeling like I need to suffer on my own, you know. And so I've um, talked about that publicly too, in addition to the domestic violence thing. Yep. So seven years ago or so, I had, um, I had fibroids and they're non-cancerous. They're not life-threatening, um, but they're just, um, it's, I can't remember what, how it works, but it's something like overactive hormones or something like that. And so, um, I had several of them removed like seven years ago and my doctor and I thought it was all good. They won't come back. Um, but they did. So I had eight, seven years ago and then had many more develop, develop over the next eight years. And so my options were to have them all removed again, which that would have been a pretty rough surgery or just go through a partial hysterectomy, which I decided to do for my long-term health. Um, so that's what it was, but I, I think I'm fortunate because I decided a couple years ago that I don't want to have my own children anyway. Um, for a variety of reasons. But so when the time came for me to make this decision, it was fairly easy. And I think it would have been a lot tougher if I wanted to have children for sure, but that's not been a goal of mine. So how, how do you talk about this and for what reason? Um, that's a good question. I think the, the, how I talk about it is um, it's more one, one-on-one. -on -one. So, um, I remember when I went into surgery, I posted photos of, of being in the hospital. And then I talked about the recovery. And I think for me, the, the reason why I talk about it is because it is an extremely, it's a difficult recovery. It's like six weeks. It is abdominal surgery, depending on, well, there's different ways you can get it, um, have it done, but mine was an uh, abdominal surgery and it's pretty invasive. Um, and I just wanted, I want people to know that these things, these, to me, they are minor setbacks, do not have to stop you from doing anything else. So that's the reason why I talk about it.
What brings you joy? What brings me joy? I think, um, so I love mentoring young people and um, what brings me joy with them is when something I said resonates with them, especially because I'm like telling them about a lot of crappy things that have happened. <laughs> and I'm like, here, here are some, uh, some ways that this could go badly. And I'll give you some advice from someone who's lived it. And, you know, and so when they take that advice and really um, make great decisions, I think that brings me a lot of joy. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing, honestly, is my work with young people. How do you define who you are? I think that I am complicated and I like that. And, um, you know, and that there's a lot of uncertainty and I'm okay with that too. So I think that like I could put, I could create two slides or like give you two sheets of paper and one like to have like all the terrible things I've done or whatever. And then all the good stuff. And you would not think that they're the same person, but they, but it is. Um, so I think that, um, I don't know. I just, I like that though. <laughs> that seems to fit you because you seem to, to some degree, as we alluded to earlier, exist in roles that perhaps notionally, statistically, you're not supposed to occupy. Mm -hmm. And yet you do, and so you seem to defy expectations in many ways. Mm -hmm. Do you defy your own expectations of yourself? I think so. I think one of, I, I would say that I just don't allow myself to be put in any sort of box, if you will. So I'm like, I, if I want to go and do a certain thing and it makes sense for me, not black woman or whatever, just like a person who wants to do a thing, then I will try to figure out a way. Like, you know, surfing and things like that, for example, that I think seem fun. There's no reason I should be out there. I can't really swim, but I will uh, try to surf. And I just did like a few months ago. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go surfing now, everybody's learning how, come on a safari with me, come on a safari with me. But I really can't swim. I'm like, the water's not that deep, you know, what's the real risk here? So I just like look at risk versus reward. That's kind of... <laughs> you mentioned some teachers that saw potential in you. Mm -hmm. When did you start to believe them? Uh, I still don't sometimes. So I, <laughs> I just, that, yeah. I still don't sometimes. So I kind of am, I, I've done some things that I think are pretty cool. Um, but I also think that sometimes in, my, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I think anybody could do this if they tried hard enough. So I think I still struggle with that. What is your goal by 40? That's a great question. So I, I have um, a few different plans. One is to leave Omaha at some point, three to five years. Um, but that that is dependent on a few things. So if I'm still single, which I don't mind, I think it's fun. Um, but you know, if I, if I don't have any kind of person who needs to stay here, then I can see that. Or if work, I'm not sure, you know, there's just different reasons why I might leave, but I think that, um, there are other communities that are, and I've talked about this before, but a little bit more diverse, a little bit more, um, beyond where Omaha currently is that I think I would enjoy a lot um, but I also like being a part of what's happening in Omaha. So that is important to me too. I want to stick around for more of that. Omaha's evolution. I want to start another business at some point. I don't know what type of business or anything, but I love that experience a lot. I love um, creating 
opportunities for people. So one of my favorite things about Interface is that we are teaching people how to code, which is great, but we're also, we also have great instructors who we pay well to teach. And I like that we said that that's what we're going to do. And we do that. So it's, you know, it's wonderful that way. Um, because we said that's a value of ours. So we do that. Um, but yeah, so it's definitely starting another business. Um, maybe, maybe get married again. I don't know. That's not a high priority, but, um, you know, just to really continue to live a life that is, uh, that makes sense to me and is on my terms for the most part. That is what I want to do. And then you mentioned possibly leaving Omaha mm-hmm. for what reason? The key reason is the um, diversity and like the black middle class. We don't really have a large black middle class in Omaha. Unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of my peers who, who have um, achieved a level, some level of success here kind of, I feel like anyway, have felt like they've capped out in Omaha and have left to go to other communities like Atlanta and Houston and um, other parts of the country like that. So um, that's a possibility for me. But like I said before, too, I also like being a part of seeing our community evolve in that way. And so that's important and interesting to me, too. But also, I assume seeing yourself playing a role in that development, not just being a passive observer. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And a lot of it, um, to me, I feel like a lot of that um, is building up others, like being very supportive of other people and finding ways to collaborate and things like that. So it's not like the Shauna show or whatever. Like, I don't really work like that. Um, it's more like, how can I collaborate? And if there are opportunities where I don't feel like I'm a good fit, how can I send someone else who is and help other people kind of start to embrace that mindset where it doesn't have to be, um, each of us, you know, being this, the, the show, if you will, it's, if we can, um, build each other up as a community, I think that's pretty huge. We've touched on some interesting, difficult, numerous and varied topics, but I want to close just by asking you if there was something you just think people should know, sharing something about yourself that maybe is um, different to the things Mm -hmm. we've been talking about. So this is a somewhat, it's not super well-known, but my friends know that I love karaoke. So it is my favorite pastime. And then I see Metallica at karaoke. Seriously. My go-to is Nothing Else Matters. It's like the best kind of ballad, rock ballad sort of song. And then um, The Unforgiven is another good one that requires a lot of, you know, you have to really dig deep to sing that one. So (laughs) I love that though. Um, And I remember the reason why I started singing Metallica was 2010. I was at a bar, a small bar in Lincoln. And um, there were... I was the only black person there, if I remember correctly. And I remember this guy got up and he sang um, Salt and Peppa's um, Push It or something. And I was like, you know, it would be hilarious because everyone here is singing rap songs if I get up there and sing Metallica. And so I started that in 2010 and um, it's kind of my go-to now. <laughs> To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show.
I've been in conversation with Shauna Dorsey. Shauna, thank you for being on the show. <laughs> thank you. But, uh, Are you a naturally shy person? Yes, I think so. And then um, I open up over time with people and things like that. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalamar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs>